The following two questions have been re-recorded. How should one deal with the fear of losing property when living in a rough environment such as developing countries where law and order is weak? Police are not much help. Neighbors are usually okay, but a particular family roams around with armed personnel and is involved in criminal activities such as land grabbing when the situation allows. Such criminal activities are not the norm, but they do happen, and one might not have the capacity to confront them in a direct fight. How should somebody deal with such a scenario? Stand one's ground and be a hero, or run away instead of facing a tougher opponent? What are your thoughts on dealing with such a fear? Well, it depends, of course, on every individual situation. There's no, there's no one pronouncement that will address all such things. You have to look at the long-term consequences. Look at the long-term consequences in terms of entropy produced. If you take action A, which is, you know, stand your ground, push back, you'll have to see what are the likely consequences, what's likely to happen. And you can go over in your mind maybe two or three or four different scenarios. Well, here's the things that I think are likely to happen. Here's the next most likely thing, you know, and just kind of go through those. Write them down if you want. It actually it makes it easier if you just write those down. What are the possibilities that are going to happen? And make the ones that are most likely at the top of the list and more and less likely as you go down the list. And then do the same thing if, what if I do it the other way? What if I acquiesce and, you know, uh, bow my head and apologize or do whatever or suck it up and, and uh, you know, let them steal my property? Uh, what if I do that? Okay, what's the, what are the long-term consequences? And by long-term, I mean over the next, what? Well, it depends on the situation, what defines long-term. But typically, long-term means, like, years, years out. Not just weeks out, but months, years, maybe even a decade out, long-term. What's the consequences? Now, look at those different sets of consequences and think about the entropy that's produced. You know, and you can think of that and what kind of harm comes to how many people? What kind of suffering is created for how many people? And kind of that's what I call doing due diligence on, you know, long-term consequences in terms of entropy. So once you've done that analysis, it's usually good to take your to, to wait a while and do it again because you'll find your answers will change as you think about it from different directions and different possibilities. Often, if it's something that really may have dire consequences, I'll actually go and and kind of work through it in a meditation state, go kind of into the database and, and, and kind of fast forward. What does this look like? Where does this go in you know a year or two years? What does this go? How does this go? How does this play out? And look at all these different possibilities then, you know, again, three or four or five days later, I go and I'll repeat the exercise. And often, like I say, I surprise myself that I come up with different answers each time because there's sometimes I'll, I'll see things, something that I discovered on the last time I went through the process now triggers something else, which changes my answers altogether. Eventually, I get to the point where I feel like the answer is stable. It hasn't changed. I come up with the same answer each time. I re I, I look over it, 
and that seems to be the low entropy path. When you find the low entropy path, and it's not just for you, but for everybody else involved in it, because there's going to be lots of people. You know, you don't live on an island. Things aren't just going to affect you. Choices you make are going to affect other people. And those other people may have to make different choices which yet affect other people. And those people will have to make different choices which will affect other people. So you have to look at the unintended consequences. Find your low entropy path and then do it and deal with the consequences. So the answer could be to stand up and, and uh, you know, fight back. To, to That might end it, or that may create even a bigger problem. They, that may be a foolish thing to do. So there's not just one answer for that, but MBT is not a pacifist philosophy. There are times when you need to just say no. You need to stand up, and you need to, uh, you know, be firm about it and accept the consequences of what that means, you know, of what might happen. And there's other times when the best thing to do is turn the other cheek and to, you know, let things go. And the only way to know which way to go is to do the due diligence on looking at how the long-term entropy ends up. Not just you, but all the people that are, all the people that your decision affects. And then the people that, that, you know, and those people, how they affect other people. So look at it out as far as you can. So, Abdul, that's the way I'd say to assess the problem. I don't know whether in your circumstance the thing would be to, you know, go buy a gun and stand up, you know, or whether the thing is to, you know, don't buy the gun but stand up, or the thing would be to, you know, to bow your head and, and take the less aggressive way out. It just depends on where all that leads. You see, there is no, there is no right answer to that. Only the one you come up with. And once you decide what it is, then be flexible because sometimes there are unintended consequences. Sometimes you'll start down a path and you'll say, uh oh, I didn't figure on this. <laughs> you know, I didn't I didn't expect that. Well now you have to do a reevaluation and maybe change your plan. So don't get so hard over that you get inflexible after you've made your decision. What about running away? Is that okay or is that a fearful thing to do in general? No, running away if it solves the problem better than anything else is a, is not a bad solution. It depends on what you leave behind. You know, if you if you run away and by running away you cause lots of other people to have terrible problems that they wouldn't have had otherwise, well then that's you know, that's maybe high entropy. On the other hand, if running away just takes you and yours out of harm's way and you know, it's something that you can do and it doesn't really hurt other people, then that may be a good thing to do. It depends on how much running away costs. You know, how much do you leave behind? How much does it, uh, you know, what the cost is? And what's the, what's the benefit? If the benefit that, oh, in two or three years, everybody recovers and lives happily ever after, well, that's a pretty good benefit of running away. You know, uh, it just... It just depends. But no, there's no problem with retreating. You know, a retreat is a, is a very uh, uh, reasonable thing to do in some cases. That's your best option. So there's nothing wrong with a surrender. You know, surrender sometimes is your best option. There's also nothing wrong with a, you know, with a, with a charge. Sometimes that's your best option. You'll just have to figure that. But there's nothing fundamentally wrong with uh, you know, surrendering or retreating. 
if that's the low entropy path for everybody, then that's the better path to take. Perfect. And I do have another question. I've been listening to you for quite some time now, but it seems that your ideas have not really entered my being level and continue to be at the intellectual level as I continue to be easily affected by stress of daily life, such as finances, family quarrels, work, etc. So what can I do to get that more at my being level? Think more about application and not just theory. Okay, if you're just listening to me and it's intellectual, that's all theory. To get it to the being level, you have to do it. You have to apply it. And that means you have to think about everything you do and why you do it. What the, what the ramifications in the long-term entropy is of all your actions for yourself and for others. You know, if you get upset and annoyed with things, then think about how has that played out? How has your anger helped or hurt the situation? How has your anger and your upset and your anxiety, how has that, uh, how has that played out? What are the results and consequences of your being anxious or upset? Well, you'll probably find that all the consequences of you being angry or upset or annoyed are not positive. Most of the consequences of that just add to the problem and make things, you know, make things worse. So when you look at that and now you have the choice, do I continue making things worse or do I change what it is I'm doing? So it's, it's, it's taking a, a very, you know, direct awareness, a direct action, you know, being aware of everything you do, why you're doing it and what the consequences are. So if you find yourself getting upset and getting anxiety, think why. Why does this upset me? Well, because it's so unfair. Well, you know, what about fairness? Life is not fair. There's no guarantee of fairness. It's just, it is. It just is the way it is. And then you have to deal with it. It's not, you know, complaining about the fairness of life is useless. It's about how do you deal with it? That's important. And how do you deal with it in a way that minimizes entropy for the system, for you and for all the people around you. So once you take it seriously that this does affect my life, it does affect my choices, things get better or worse depending on how I make my choices and how I affect other people, then you start to feel a, an obligation. You start to feel a, a, seriousness, a seriousness about every choice you make. So you get angry, and you know that's not helping. And if it doesn't help you, then it doesn't help all the people that depend on you and all the people that associate with you. It's not helpful to any of them. So being aware of, of your choices and all your interactions and how it affects the people around you should give you the, the uh, energy necessary to change your behavior, to apply the things that you've learned here with MBT to your life, and you don't have to jump in with some kind of, you know, grand thing. You can just kind of stick your toe in the water first before you, de you know, jump into the deep end. You can say, well, let me just try it on this one thing and see if that helps. I'll try being positive here and see how that works out. Or I'll put my foot down here and demand that that, you know, stuff stop. Or I'll run away. You know, you can 
make these choices, but do it uh, consciously, not just because you're upset. I guess that's the thing uh, that you hear often. It says live in the moment, you know, be aware, be here now, you know, be aware of everything you do, its consequences and why you do it. And then you will be able to uh, apply it. But if you just let life go by and you do things because that's the way you feel, then typically nothing changes. Patterns repeat. Negative, you know, negative issues just stay. They don't, nothing really changes much. The players and the characters may change, but the same drama keeps playing itself out over and over again. Does that help you out any? It does. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, I can't give you any really specific answer unless you know, I really understood a specific problem. And and uh, you'll just have to work that, you know, just have to work that uh, out on your own. Um, Carolyn's next. Thank you. Hello, Tom. Hello, Carolyn. I wanted to ask how how to deal with authenticity um, if it's not being well perceived and if you end up in an argument with the other person, even though you have the intent to grow up and like act in a loving way, but sort of still express how you're feeling. Well, you need to grow up in a way that not only lowers entropy for you, but lowers entropy for everybody. So as you grow up, be aware of how you affect other people. And if your effect on other people is negative, but you see that on your path to growing up, well, the first thing I'd do would be I'd, I'd talk with them, those other people, and say, look, you know, I'm trying something out to see how it fits or how does it work. Or maybe you don't have to actually act it out. Maybe you can just talk to them and they'll tell you how they're going to react to it, how it would make them feel without you having to, to do it. So you're growing up. You have to be aware that you're not growing up again alone on an island, that the choices you make affect other people. So you have to make choices that, that help you grow up, you know, maybe explore things. But you have to do it in a way that is – you know, minimum damage to your environment. You know, so you have to think about not only yourself, but how you affect other people. So let's say that you, uh, you know, that you have, you have rage. You know, I know this is not your case, but I'm just going to make this up. Let's say you have rage over something and you always stuff it. You always hold it back. You know, you don't, you don't vent it, but you have this rage. And you think, well, you know, I just like to let that rage go and see how that feels and see where it goes. And maybe that'll help me grow up. Well, find a way to do that alone. You know, find a way to, uh, you know, go crawl in a hole all by yourself and let the rage go there where it doesn't affect anybody else. Don't blow that rage right in a lot of people's face and see how it works because it's liable to blow back at you then. You see, so you need to find ways to do what you need to do that uh, that don't hurt other people. So that's a little challenge. You can't just grow up. You know, it's not like here. here's the steps I want to take, and everybody else is just going to have to deal with it. That's okay if everybody else can deal with it. 
And particularly if you tell them ahead of time, here's why I'm doing it. Here's what I'm going to do. It's only going to be temporary. I just want to see, I just need to get this out. Then they probably can take all kinds of stuff that they wouldn't want to live with, but they can take temporarily. So you could talk to them about that and see if you can get them to agree to it. But if they say, no, I don't think so. I can't go there, you know, because I'll take it all personally. Then I'll be upset. And then that, my upset will upset you, which will upset me. And the whole thing will just, you know, blow up then you can't do that. You have to find some other way to grow yourself up. You have to find a way that you can be who you are without causing more trouble than it's worth. Maybe you have to go off by yourself for a while. Maybe you just need to you know, be alone for a, a week or two until you work those things out. Maybe you need to go someplace where nobody knows you to you know, do your 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 growth. I don't know what the solution is, but you do have to be concerned about the people around you and how they how they will deal with what you're asking them to deal with. If they are really well grown and and very solid in their own, you know, uh, self-assurance, their own uh, confidence, then they can probably take a lot. Particularly if it's going to be a short period of time, but if they're not if they have their own insecurities, their own needs and wants and desires and fears and beliefs and so on, then you're going to have to deal with that too. So it just depends on who's, you know, what's, what's going on there. But you do have to be aware of other people and not hurt them. You can't just grow up at other people's expenses. Well, what would be then, uh, yeah, so, so a good way. So if I'm, if something upsets me about another person, like, um, and if I, uh, so good way to communicate about it would be just to also do it by myself, to just work it out myself. Well, there's a couple of things you can do. If there's something that upsets you about another person, then you have to realize that that's you. You choose to be upset when that thing happens. So it's, it's you. It's, it's not necessarily this other person. They're just being who they are, and you're being upset by it. So first thing to do is look at yourself and say, okay, why do I get upset by that? Why does this bother me so much? Why can't I just let that kind of roll, you know, go in one ear and out the other, just kind of roll off the, you know, my back? Why can't I deal with that without getting upset? And then try to fix yourself. And if you do that for a while, You could tell that other person, you know, when you do these things, I have this, this negative reaction to it so that perhaps they will try not to do those things because you have the negative reaction. But the best way to fix it is not to help them fix themselves, but to help yourself fix yourself, you know, work on you, work on you. So find out why that upsets you. Why do you take that personally? Why is that something that, that upsets you and try to deal with that fear? so that it doesn't upset you, that you can just say, well, that's just the way they are, and if that's the way they are, that's okay with me. I can work around it. It's not that big a deal to get to that spot. So I'd say work on yourself as a solution first. But you can also tell a person, I mean, it's good to be honest with people. If somebody does things that pushes a button of yours that bothers you, it's fair enough to say, hey, this is the way I am. This pushes my button, and I get upset. That's nothing wrong with that. That's just being honest to tell people that. But it's you who choose to get upset. 
it's they who choose to do something that pushes your button. So there's room for both people to find solutions. The button pusher can try to not push the button on you, and you can try to learn to not react that way when that button gets pushed to kind of deactivate that button. But is there also like um, boundaries you have to set up for yourself, or is that something that sort of come, comes naturally, like when you work on those fears? Yeah, your you know, your buttons actually define boundaries. You know, if you if a person has a whole lot of buttons, things that upset them, then that defines kind of the boundaries with which somebody else can interact with you. Well, they can't say this and they can't say that and they need to do these other things this way. So your buttons define your boundaries. When you get rid of those buttons, which means when you get rid of that fear, then your boundaries are really pretty, pretty broad. Hardly nothing upsets you. Almost everything you can, you can, uh, you know, just kind of slides by. Nothing sticks, nothing hurts. You don't get upset. It uh, leaves you in a pretty good place with very broad boundaries. Now, Still, you need some boundaries. You know, somebody just can't walk up to you and slap you or something. You know, that's obviously violating a boundary that uh, you should have. You, know, you, you need some boundaries. But uh, if these are emotional things, then those boundaries will go away as you get rid of your fears. They'll, they'll expand. And you'll be able to accept people much better just the way they are. In other words, you interact with the good parts of people. If you have another person and there's 20 ways that you connect with each other, you know, if, if 15 or 16, those are really, really nice and three or four hurt. Well, if you get rid of those buttons that make them hurt, now you've got 15 ways that you can interact with this person. They're really nice. And the other things just don't bother you. So now it can be a really good relationship. So it's very seldom that you're going to find other people and every possible way you could possibly interact with them is always wonderful. That's not likely. I mean, I guess it could happen, but basically people are people and you're going to run into things in almost everybody that maybe they're not exactly the way you'd like it to be. But if it's not a big thing, if it's not a you know a, a deal breaker, if it's not really a monster thing, then you need to just let let that go and say, yeah, that's just the way they are. People aren't perfect. You're not perfect. There's things about you that probably annoy other people as well. See, you're not perfect. People aren't perfect. You're not perfect. So eh, let's let the imperfections go. We don't need a perfect person. We just need a person that has enough positive things that I can interact with them and feel good being around them. Good enough. They don't have to be perfect. This other stuff, I just let it go. Not that important. 15 out of 20 is good. Even, you know, 10 out of 20 is good. If those 10 are really good things. And the rest of it just isn't that important. Accept it. It's the way they are. Maybe if you give them a real safe space by accepting it, they'll change it. Makes it easier for them to change it. Because their own buttons have to do with their own fears. And the way that you can help other people get rid of their fears is to give them a safe space. In other words, you don't react negatively to their, to their belief or to their fear. That gives them a place where they can maybe overcome it. So it's surprising. The more you uh, let these 
things that aren't to your liking go, the more likely they are that they'll be changed. The more you fuss about them and complain about them, the less likely it is that they'll that they'll be able to be changed. Okay, thank you, Tom. That helps a lot. Yeah, you're welcome, Caroline. Tom, the next question comes from Nicholas E., and he is on audio only. He was here last time but didn't get to ask his questions, so I'm going to read them. Um, Nicholas is asking... Um, for three or four years now, he, the advertising algorithm has been noticing my interest in the spiritual, and I notice a new space of intuitive people who charge for their skill set. What are your opinions of this? It should be better to charge for healing and answers than most of the other consulting out there, but what should we be careful about if we want to hire an intuitive person uh, to get answers or receive healing? I suspect recommendation would be one thing I would advise talk to people who have already experienced this person and see how satisfied they were, particularly if you can find people that have problems similar to your problems, you know, to see, see whether, you know, see whether they were successful with other people. So I'd ask for, you know, give me a list of five or six, seven people that, that would give you, give me recommendations, people that you've healed with a similar, so here's my problem. If you ever done with, with this problem before and if they say yes you say well good give me some people some recommendations that i can talk to if that's possible and they may not you know because depends on the problem the problem is maybe something that's very private they may not be able to give you that but mostly they should be able to give you some people that you could talk to that would give you some sense of that the recommendations would be a strong idea other than that, go in with something simple. Say, well, let's just, okay, I've got these four or five things wrong. You know, here's one of them. Let me just take this one and let's just work on that. And if that works out well, then maybe I'll, I'll bring up the others. Just pick one of the least expensive, least amount of time kind of things that you can do and just use that as a trial. See how that works. If that works really well, well, then take another one. If that works really well, well, then do another one. If uh, if the first one just bombs and it doesn't help you any, then I suspect that's enough. You could go you know, look for someone else. There's a lot of free services available for healing. You can uh, Google uh, healing circles or other such things, and you'll find that there are literally dozens and dozens of these healing circles. There's hundreds of people who are willing to heal and do other sorts of intuitive uh, services for free. They don't charge. It's something they, they just do because they want to help. So I would start there first and see if you can find everything that you need there. Um, well, maybe not first, maybe second. First, learn to meditate and learn how to do these things yourself so that you can heal yourself. But if doing it yourself is problematic for some reason, then try the, the free route first, because often those are very good. You know, it's not the case that because they're free, that they're not as good. That's not it at all. Matter of fact, those healing circles are often more powerful than any one person would be, because there's 10 or 20 or 30 or sometimes more people all engaged in healing you 
Well, that can be a very powerful thing. So it's, uh, you know, it's not true that you get what you pay for in this case. <laughs> it's getting, you know, getting talented people to, to work on you is the, or do the things you want is the issue. And they are available at no cost if you do some research. But there's also plenty of good people who do charge for their services because, you know, everybody needs to make a living and, that's an honest living is to provide services for people. So get the, you know, find out about them, get recommendations, talk to them, start small. Well, Tommy also asked about crystals. What do you, what is your um, information on, on crystals? Are there any benefits to those? Well, there can be benefits to anything. You know, I mean, anything can have some benefit to it. I can hand you, you know, a magic toothbrush. And if you feel very positive that this magic toothbrush is going to help heal you, it probably will. That's called the placebo effect. And the placebo effect actually heals. You know, it is good medicine. So anything can have value. Now, people can use crystals as tools in their healing practice. Okay, now they may tell you to take this crystal and put it under your pillow or you know, take this crystal and hold it in your hand or take this crystal and you know uh, hold it up to your forehead and turn around three times and jump up and down once. They may tell you things like that and they may, they may sound silly and if you look at them, none of them may seem rational but if that's part of their tool set, then it helps them focus their intent to help you. Okay? So it's not just necessarily about the interaction between you and their crystal. It's the interaction between you and, the, you know, the healing provider, the crystal, and you. If that healing person can do better healing if you're holding a crystal, well, that's a tool that they use to help them focus their intent on what, they, on what they're doing. And therefore, it may be useful, you know, to say, you know, a crystal all by itself without any, you know, without any human involved in it is probably not going to do much for anybody about anything. But it's the person that's connected to the crystal and what you do and why you do it and their intent and how that crystal figures into their intent and everything else, you know, the crystal may be valuable. So it's not the crystal itself that's the key. It's how that crystal affects your and your attitude and your uh, sense of confidence and belief and their and the practitioner's attitude and their confidence of when in what they're doing. So if you go to a practitioner and they use crystals or some kind of particular scents or magic oils or any other kinds of things, then I would do whatever the practitioner says to do. Do it in the way they say to do it. Follow the directions. May not have anything to do with those tools, but those tools may have a lot to do with the, the practitioner's ability to be effective. So that'd be working with the practitioner to use whatever the stuff is that the practitioner says, because that's what they say. And then if you work with them, follow directions, and if that works, good. If it doesn't work, then by all means, tell the practitioner that. It helps them learn. Feedback helps them learn as well. 
Well, thank you, Tom. I thought I would mention that um, there is an MBT outpouring page uh, with a lot of healers in the MBT group. It's at Love Caring Healing on Facebook. And we also do a global healing uh, once a month. Um, you can sign up for that at MBT Events uh, contact form. Let's, for the moment, go on to Guillaume. Guillaume has a couple of questions, and he's also on audio. Go ahead, Guillaume. Hi, Tom. Uh, as a man, I always wonder if there was a direct correlation with my inner peace, emotions, double energy, and the way I experience my uh, experience sexuality in my life. To simplify the numerous questions I have on this subject, I would like to talk about semen retention in intercourse and the benefits from uh, not masturbating for a male to uh, lower the entropy of his consciousness. I've read a bunch of books on the subjects of sexuality, and I'm really not sure what to think after reading uh, a book uh, by Mantakshia, uh, whose name is Taoist Secret Love, Cultivating Male Sexual Energy. <clears throat> so to paraphrase really simply the idea in this book, uh, Mantakshia say that each time we ejaculate, we lose as a man, an enormous amount of potential energy that could contribute to depression, bad mood, low energy in daily life. <clears throat> um, here's a quote that could resume the idea in the book. Uh, Sex essence is the source of all energy available for creative and thinking processes. Um, there is another quote that could I could add. It, it is from uh, 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 the canon of Taoist wisdom. Uh, if a man has intercourse course once without spilling his seed, his vital essence is strengthened. If he does this twice, his hearing and vision are made clear. If three times, all his physical illness will disappear. The fourth time, it will begin to fear inner peace, and so on and so on. Uh, could you comment with some of your wisdom on those ancient Taoist tradition of semen retention from a celibacy perspective and maybe as a married life perspective as well? Okay. I have read such things as well, too. Um, some in the tantric tradition also come to uh, uh, similar conclusions. Of course, as far as I know, there's not really been any serious scientific research done about this, so it's all uh, pretty much speculation. So I think science really does have, have anything to say about it since no research has been done. But from my own experience and understanding of reality and how it works and the mind and energy and so forth, I would disagree with those ideas. And the, the concept seems simple enough that sexual energy is a fundamental part of your energy. You know, that's the, that's in the, uh, uh, you know, the 
yin and yang viewpoint of life where everything is is broken down into male and female energy, then the uh, is it yang energy is the is the male energy, and that is supposed to be a very very big part of your energy as a man. I don't buy that. So I would say that that's probably not the case. I can see the, the viewpoint that if you think that's the case and that your ejaculation decreases that energy because sometime, somehow that semen kind of is the physical representation of that energy, that then you would save it. And if you save it, it would grow You're like putting money in a bank. You know, the more money you put in the bank, the richer you are, and that it would just keep going like that. Well, that's a... That's an easy logic to follow, but it's based on, I think, a very faulty principle, and that's that, that semen is, has anything really seriously to do with your spiritual growth, your consciousness, or your energy as a human being. It's just physical stuff. It's virtual body. It's just a virtual body. Your, you know, your thinking, your energy, your knowledge, your understanding, your compassion, your emotions, all of that's tied up in consciousness. Yes, the physical body has some connection with that because consciousness has to work through the physical body, and the physical body tends to rearrange itself to express the consciousness. So it's not that there's no connection between body and consciousness. There, There is a connection, but it's not that kind of a connection. It's not that the body creates spiritual energy or conscious energy. That's not the way that body-consciousness link flows. It's not that the body creates spiritual energy or any, any other thing that's physical. The semen does not create this energy. The link actually runs the other way around. It's, the, it's what's in consciousness affects the body. Consciousness is fundamental. The body is a subset. So from my viewpoint, I would find that that is not the case, that it is probably counterproductive to your biology because your biology was, was designed for reproduction. That's what your biology, you know, those are your instincts, and that's what your biology, sexual biology is designed for reproduction. Reproduction requires ejaculation not withholding it. So that's what you that's what you were designed to do as a as a you know physical animal as a virtual you know a virtual animal in this simulation. And to go counter to that I'd say is likely just to cause problems. And eventually that repression would add up and add up and instead of giving you great wisdom and health and wonderful benefits I'd say it's more likely to give you problems, difficulties. Now, on the other hand, if you are really convinced that something's going to help, then you have a placebo effect. So if you're convinced that this is the way it works and this I'm going to feel better, I'm going to have more energy, then indeed you may get that as a, as a byproduct. But that's the placebo effect working. If it actually, you know, I don't think it would actually physically work out that way. The Eastern philosophies, I was going to say religions, but philosophies, 
which in the East, that's almost the same thing, philosophy and religion, uh, they, they tend to have a lot of physical body metaphors, like chakras, right? So you've got seven chakras in the body, and each one has a different place in the body and functions different things in the body. And, of course, they also interface with the spiritual world and have things to do with consciousness and energy and so forth. These these uh, metaphors you, that, that uh, use the physical body, I think, come about because it simplifies the concepts for the average person. The average person does not do well with highly, um, what's the word, uh, abstract, with highly abstract ideas. Most people just don't can't get their arms around those, but you give them something concrete to grab hold of, and they can work with that. So if you got rid of all the chakras and just had discussions of the different kinds of, of uh, you know, consciousness intentions cause what kind of things to happen and so on, there would only be a very, very small handful of people that would deal with that successfully because it's just too abstract. If you give it body parts and you can you know focus on these body parts and exercises for these body parts now a whole lot more people can get involved in the process and then you attach the consciousness part to it the spiritual part to it and again a lot of people now can can enter in the process so i think these things have developed in order to make the teachings more widely available to more people to give them something concrete to grab hold of. And once that gets started, then sometimes people pick up those concepts and run with them, <laughs> do different things with them. And I think this is probably one of those. Well, okay, energy, you know, that the, the energy and what's at the root chakra, right? That's where you're, that's right in the groin. That's, that's kind of the, the center of your sexuality as well. And that's got this energy and that energy. Now that you got that idea, even though that's, just a metaphor, but if you take it as a fact rather than a metaphor, now you start making up other things that, you know, you can work with that. Well, okay, I've got this root chakra stuff, and that has to do then with the semen and with sexuality and so on, and then you can start building up a whole program of body. You know, you get to you get to um, higher levels of, of uh, consciousness. You evolve the quality of your consciousness by changing things in your body. Well, it doesn't work that way. In my mind, you don't improve the quality of your consciousness by changing things in your body, by doing or not doing anything physical. You get your quality of consciousness by making good choices, by being caring, by being you know, cooperative, by, by loving, by helping, by getting rid of your fear. That's how you gain quality of consciousness. There's nothing that you can do. You can't physically do things that give you high quality consciousness. You've got to earn that high quality through choice, through actions, through the way you interact with people. So, you know, you can do these practices, which now makes everything easier. You don't actually have to go out and be nice. You don't have to go out and be cooperative. You don't really have to go out and love and care and not be upset and not get angry. All you have to do is not ejaculate. Well, that makes everything a lot simpler, doesn't it? Yes, okay, well, you can get a lot more people to buy into that because it's kind of simple and straightforward, and you can do it, and you do this, and you get that.
you know, that's the, the you know, like the quick path to enlightenment, you know. Well, that all seen that all rings false to me. But I can see how people did that, how they got some value out of it, mostly placebo value, how they, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, well, the, ta- the let me back up the tantric, the tantric uh, philosophy actually makes sexuality a meditation. Now, that's a little different. Sexuality becomes a meditation. Well, you can make anything a meditation. You know, meditation doesn't have to be saying a mantra or, or, or you know, focusing on your breath. Mantra can be anything. A mantra can be anything. Uh, you know, the, the thing that helps you uh, meditate can be anything. Can be something you look at. You know, people used to look at crystal balls because it was like looking at a field that had very little, you know, kind of random definition uh, or f- candle flames or tracing mandalas with their eyes or listening to music or how about the Sufi dancing? You know, some people can meditate through movement. So there's lots of things that you can, you can make anything a meditation. Anything. I mean, you can make eating an apple a meditation. You could sit down with your apple, you know, and take one bite of it and then t- taste all the tastes and then the smells and let those, you know, do this and that. You could take you a half an hour to eat an apple and you could turn it into a meditation. Anything that you can connect in your mind with relaxing, letting go, becoming one, you know, with something else, then that's a good meditation. Well, you can make sexuality a meditation. It's that's this kind of the tantra way. Now, in that case, you are. It is a spiritual practice because it's a meditation, unless, of course, you get more into the physical part of it than the spiritual part of it, and then it's just learning a lot of sexual control, and you kind of lose out on the spiritual end of it, and it becomes something else. It depends on how you approach it, what you do with it. So there's lots of connections between what spiritual growth and sexuality that's in the literature, and most of it is just tools. Making sex part of a spiritual practice, well, that's just making sex the tool. Like I said, you can make an apple part of a spiritual practice if you wanted to. You can make a statue of a Buddha part of your spiritual practice, or burning incense, or ringing of gongs, or you make all kinds of physical things part of your meditation, if you uh, want. And they can be effective parts. Tools can be effective. Just because it's not fundamental, like the chakras are not fundamental, they're tools. But that doesn't mean they aren't valuable. It doesn't mean they aren't effective. So it's not that you can't get there from here, but on the face of it, I'd say it rings very false to me. You don't become wise through not ejaculating. You don't become more highly evolved. You don't gain spirituality or truth or health through saving, this, you know, putting, putting your male energy in the bank. None of that rings true. It's all physical stuff. Putting that physical energy in a, you know, that's not the way it works. Consciousness works the other way around. Consciousness is fundamental. The physical is just an avatar. It's calculated. It's a computation in a computer, just like your elf, just like your Sims character. 
So if a Sims character doesn't ejaculate, you know, is it going to make them wiser? You know, well, it's, it doesn't doesn't make any sense, does it? It's, it's a virtual reality. It, um, just doesn't make any sense. So, no, I'd say that's not the way it works. The consciousness logs onto the body. You evolve by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps by by caring by having a strong intent to grow up, being part of the solution rather than part of the problem, by being positive. That's how you gain spiritual quality. And, of course, meditation's on the path to that, gets rid of some of the noise in your mind, lets you focus and concentrate better. So meditation's a good tool. But you can meditate and never grow up at all. Meditation doesn't make you grow up. It's just a tool that you can use to help you grow up. So not ejaculating is going to make you grow up or make you uh, evolve or save your energy or make you more powerful. All of that is uh, is uh, belief. Well, so now I started out saying that none of this is science. So, you know, what I just told you is just Tom Campbell's viewpoint. You know, it's, it's my own uh, sense of it from my own experience. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it wrong. It's just my my viewpoint on the subject. There's no real facts out there other than, you know, personal testimonials, but personal testimonials are all full of bias through placebo and all kinds of other things. No, you know, the testimonials aren't uh, very valid. That, that, that They don't make scientific, you know, uh, evidence. So that's what I would think about that does that help sure that was uh, fun to uh, listen to your wisdom about that thank you for sharing uh, just to pursue that kind of question about the relation relation between the body and mind i mean when we were talking about sexuality uh, uh having not really uh, a link with the consciousness but what about breathing? Because uh, I think the way I see breathing is does that does that my breathing have a direct correlation with my consciousness? Because when I'm more calming, I uh, I mean I breathe less. I have like six insulate six uh, six six. Inhaling by me, yeah. I'm calmer. There's less anxiety, yeah. so I'm able to uh, make better decisions. So, uh, do you quite understand what I mean by by sure. that? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, the body and the and the consciousness obviously are connected, and I said that you know there's a connection there, and the body tends to change itself to better express the consciousness. Um, The breath will change as you meditate, and the breath isn't the only thing. Your blood pressure decreases. The the galvanic skin response, that's that's the conduction through your body of electrical currents. That goes up. You become a lot less conductive when you're in a meditation. All sorts of physical things happen when you're in a meditation state. Um, your EEG, your brainwave, you know, tends to settle down into a theta state. 
So there's lots of, if you wire somebody up for, for with sensors and let them meditate, you'll find all sorts of things happen. That's because the mind gets in a very tranquil state of inner peace. Then so does the body. Blood pressure reduces, you know, uh, sometimes body even feels warmer. Person feels, you know, kind of flush and their body feels warm and, and, uh, Anyway, yes, there are a lot of, of, you know, physical characteristics that go with consciousness state, but that's the body following the conscious, not the body forcing the consciousness to be some way. That's why I say the, the arrow here is pointing in the wrong direction. Consciousness can, you know, modify the body. So let's say you are a person who, for example, let's say you're a person who uh, tends to be negative and upset and complain a lot. Well, if you do that over years and years, what you will do is your body, in order to reflect that kind of a consciousness, will stop making so much serotonin. That's, a, that's one of your neurotransmitters, the stuff that uh, your brain creates. Okay, so now you tend to be depressed. Okay, so your doctor says, oh, you're kind of depressed. Let me give you some Prozac or something else. And what Prozac does is it increases the number of the amount of serotonin you have, increases the, the neurotransmitters. Oh, and you feel better now. But you see, the reason that you had the low serotonin wasn't because your body was defective. It's because the body was following the mind. Okay, but then you can take a pill which then raises those transmitters up. Now the body doesn't reflect the mind so much anymore. But eventually it will, because then you'll start needing more of them. And the dosage will have to keep going up and up, because you're still a negative person. And pretty soon you'll run out. You won't be able to take any more of them, because now you get to the point where they're a problem if you take that much of them. Now you have to switch medications or do something else till you overcome that one. So anyway, there's lots of ways that there are connections between mind and body, but the arrow generally runs from the consciousness to the body, not the other way around. So people would think, well, no, look, I take serotonin. I mean, I take Prozac. That changes my behavior, changes my mind. My consciousness is not as negative. I'm a lot happier. Well, yes, but the reason you were not happy in the first place was because that was a problem you were having. Now, we can boost that up, but eventually your mind will overcome that. Like I say, you'll need more Prozac and then even more Prozac. If you don't change, you know, what you're doing is is the medicine is modifying symptoms. It's not actually fixing causes. So, yes, there's a lot of connections like that. Mind does affect the body, and you can take a pill and affect, you know, your level of consciousness. You seem suddenly, uh, you know, less upset with everybody when you take the pill. So it appears that it's going both ways, but mostly it goes in the way of the mind to the body, not the other way around. That's typically the way that goes. Now, you can, you can do things to the, to the mind, or you can do things to the brain, let's say, the physical thing, the virtual brain, that will affect what the conscious can do with the avatar. So you, somebody gets a slap, you know, somebody gets hit in the head, 
causes their brain to, to be smacked, and now they slur their words and can't remember anything. So now the consciousness has to deal with an avatar that can't speak well and drags its leg. So now the consciousness isn't hurt. The consciousness wasn't hurt, you know, by that being hit, you know, by that brain injury. Consciousness has nothing to do with the brain. But now consciousness has to play a, a hurt avatar. So avatar can't speak. Avatar drags its foot. So that's what it has to play with now. Avatar can't uh, function as well as it used to. That gives the conscious another whole set of choices to deal with that it didn't have before. So it's not that there isn't any connection between the two, but the connection that you're talking about with the with the uh, you know not ejaculating, building up masculine energy that makes you more powerful and better healthy and, and a higher quality of consciousness, that's all going in the wrong direction. There isn't any physical thing you can do that makes you more enlightened. That gives you, you know, that that turns you into a, a being of love rather than one of, of uh, fear. You can't do that. It's not like you can't take an anti-fear pill. Now you can take a pill that makes you act less afraid, right? You can take a pill that seems to give you courage, but again, that's not real. It just makes you feel that way. It doesn't actually change anything doesn't change anything fundamentally. It just changes the symptom, the way you act. Okay. Hope Thank you, you find that. Yeah, you're welcome. Just my, just Tom Campbell's point of view. Again, I'm not trying to say this is the way it is. You have heard the truth. <laughs> That's not necessarily the case. You've just heard my, uh, my opinion of it because there's no science to, to produce any facts anywhere in this. Tom Campbell here. I and MBT Events hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.